Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. I'm excited this morning about the guest, which I will share with you in a minute. Uh, my friend and colleague, Bill Cutter. I'll come back and I'll come back to that because I want to tell you first of all about uh, the conference that's coming up next week. The Michigan Association of Private Investigators, it's called MCPI, is hosting NCISS, the National Council of Investigative and Security Services, for their midterm meeting. And if you're still interested in going, you may just go on to. N C I S S Nancy uh, what Charlie Ida S S Sam Sam dot com and uh, you can register. It starts on Sunday night this coming week, the 29th, and uh, uh, I wish you well if you're interested in going. Now I have Bill Cutter. Hi, Bill. Hi, Francie. How are you? Thanks for having me on the show. Bill has been on the show before. He is, uh, I'm, I'm telling you, this is guy is probably uh, the busiest guy I know. He, I would say he's probably the best investigator I know. And he has accomplished <laughs> just, I, I mean, I'm just astonished about what he's accomplished. He's just published a book uh, called Coltar. Is that the one? Yes. And it's uh, how Corrupt politics and corporate greed are killing America's children. It's about a childhood cancer epidemic case that I began investigating almost 30 years ago. And it you can get that. Illinois Supreme Court precedent. Yeah. And, that, and it's available <laughs> on, on Amazon. Amazon. Cole Tar, mm-hmm. C-O-A-L, Tar. Um, and uh, it's, it's really a fascinating read, I can tell you. Uh, I haven't gotten all the way through it, but I've gotten part of the way through it, and it's really good. And Bill is just, he is so busy in uh, getting people exonerated and getting involved in cases and really ferreting out the facts. So I'm just very honored on having him back on the show. Today we're going to talk about an interesting case involving uh, two men, Tom McMillan and Gary Edgington, who are serving time in Illinois. Um, So I'm going to let you take it from, I'm sorry, what? They're serving life sentences in Illinois. Life sentences. Um, yeah. So I, and let me just uh, fill the reader, the listeners in. I started the what's now the Illinois Innocence Project 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago. And um, that project without staff attorneys or a law school, we accomplished three major exonerations by the time of our 10 year anniversary. Um, I was a part of two cases that led to the abolition of the death penalty in Illinois and thus moved to Kentucky in 2012, at, uh, right after Illinois abolished the death penalty, where I'm continuing to work capital cases. But uh, six years ago, I started a national organization of private investigators, a, a not-for-profit organization uh, investigating innocence. And since then, we spoke last when David Cam was exonerated, who was a Indiana, former Indiana state trooper who spent 13 years in prison for killing his family. And of course, that murder was committed by a career criminal who had just been released from prison. And so that was our first, the first year we started, we had the exoneration of David Cam. Um, and then we went on to work on the 
case of Curtis Lovelace. He was the former team captain of the Fighting Illini football team that won the Citrus Bowl in 1990. He was uh, he reads Scott Turow's book, Presumed Innocent, and decides he wants to become a prosecutor. And he becomes a prosecutor in his hometown of Quincy, Illinois. And hmm. his wife, unfortunately, died of natural causes. But eight years later, he remarries and gets falsely accused of killing his wife. And, of course, the plot of Scott Turow's book, Presumed Innocent, is about a prosecutor who gets wrongfully accused of murder. And so that exoneration was March of 2017, and our organization raised $13,000 to uh, fund experts, and, uh, and he was eventually released. But the following year, we had our third exoneration, Rodney Lincoln. And that was an amazing story because I appeared on Crime Watch Daily. It was their uh, maiden uh, season, and the show that was produced uh, was nominated for an Emmy, but it triggered the recantation of a seven-year-old child who's now an adult who witnessed her mother brutally murdered by uh, our investigation showed it was a serial killer Tommy Lynn Sells who was executed in Texas and so now uh, we're working on the case of Tom McMillan that's our featured case if you go to our website you can read more about it but uh, we're calling on the Illinois governor to uh, either commute the sentence Tom McMillan was convicted in 1991 and he, he was convicted based on the testimony of a man named Donald Goose Johnston, who was the first to face the death penalty for the murder of Melissa Kuntz, who was abducted after leaving work at a grocery store where she worked during the summer. She was home from school, and she disappeared uh, last seen alive at 10 p.m. And um, Tom McMillan uh, and uh, Edgington were both facing the death penalty after... Uh, this Goose Johnson claimed to be an eyewitness to her abduction. And we, in our investigation, um, the first, his, his trial attorney at the time was trying to get the mental health records of Donald Johnson. He suspected that Donald Johnson was mentally retarded. Now we call it intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. And when we interviewed Johnston in um, just a few years back, he not only recanted his testimony against uh, McMillan and Edgington, but he gave us an authorization to get his mental health records, and it showed that he had a, a full-scale IQ of only 56. And, of course, the bright line had been established by this, uh, some states that 70, you couldn't execute somebody who had an IQ lower than 70. Well, here's a person who had an IQ of 56, and he's giving testimony of having witnessed the abduction of Melissa Coons. Every detail he gives is contradicted by crime scene evidence or other witnesses. Mm. And so we're calling on the governor to release Tom McMillan and Gary Edgington after all these years in prison now, going on almost on 30 years. Amazing. So. Just amazing. Yeah. So um, let's back up a second, Bill, if we could, and talk a little bit about investigating innocence, because I, I think it's uh, a really uh, fabulous program that you have set up. And I want people to know about that. So if they're interested, they can join you. Yeah. Yeah, and any of your listeners today, if they just if they um, if they join now, we'll give them free membership through the end of the year. So okay. We, we when I the concept of this was to have um, private investigators who are skilled and trained in post conviction investigation to be available to innocence projects. There's over seventy three innocence projects throughout the country. And I was on the ground floor when that was created back um, in 1990, 
2007, there was a, a major conference in Chicago. It brought together at that time uh-huh. 77 former de- death row inmates who had been exonerated. That was your, now there's even more. The numbers are. I, I was more. at that conference, Bill. <laughs> oh well, if we, we, if we had known each other, we could have hung out. But yeah, it was an amazing. Wasn't that an amazing experience? It and was. So, it was so it was emotional. Stressful. Just uh, really yeah, amazing. It, yeah. 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 So that that conference um, brought all the major investigators and attorneys who worked on these exoneration cases, and you obviously had worked on some to get there. Yeah. Uh, but um, there was Barry Shack in Lincoln Hall at Northwestern School of Law calling on everybody who was there to go back in your committees and create innocent projects. And, they, and that was the beginning of uh, the Innocence Network movement. And I came back to my old uh, uh, university. It's now the University of Illinois at Springfield. But when I attended uh, legal studies back in the mid-1980s, it was Sangamon State University and Springfield, Illinois. But mm-hmm. that's where we started off. It was the first undergraduate program in the country. And uh, so for 10 years, I ran that project. So, uh, but it's, it's, so when I moved to Kentucky, I started investigating innocence. And our first case, of course, was David Cam. But now we, we have, so, you know, and it's been kind of an ad hoc organization for uh, six years now. And it's been, you know, the three exonerations we have have been primarily my pro bono contributions to these cases, but I'd like to get mm-hmm. more private investigators involved and actually have a working um, PI organization that uh, that gets recognized at the annual Innocence Network conference that's held each spring. And um, it's an opportunity for private investigators who want to get involved in doing, uh, working on actual innocence cases. Because, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've been doing criminal defense investigation for 30 plus years now. And most of my clients are guilty that I work on. But every now yeah. and then, you, and you, even in my private cases, you come along uh, a case where someone's innocent. And, and really, it's the work of the private investigators that really makes a difference in these cases. And my upcoming article in PI Magazine will be about a private investigator, Freddie Parrish in California, whose uh, investigation led to the exoneration of Brian Banks. It's now a major motion picture. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I tell Freddie's story in, in the next uh, edition coming up. But, so, uh, folks, if, you, if you're I, interested you know, in uh, joining this group, Investigative Innocence, go to just put in that. Put in that. It's investigatinginnocence.org. It has all the information on there. Uh, it has the information about uh, freeing David Cam, the former state uh, Indiana trooper. Uh, it has all, all these things that you, you might want to get involved in. And, uh, Bill, is there a way on there to reach out to you? Yeah, you can send me an email. And, like, and we're still uh, – we, we're still – um, we're doing some revision, uh, some overhaul to our website. So what we would like to do is uh, we have a, a field on our homepage where people that are looking for a private investigator to work on a, on a loved one's case or an innocence project can go and uh, find a private investigator in, in, you know, throughout the country. So mm-hmm. uh, that's my hope is to populate that directory so that people that are looking for – and we actually ha- – it's a, it's a good – investment of a hundred dollars once the membership starts uh Absolutely. at the end of the year or the beginning of the year. because Absolutely. for that hundred dollars you get a listing on our on our website and we we have one of the higher google rankings when 
people, you know, if you look for your, if you Google your name, you'll probably, our website will probably pop up in the first page of, uh, mm. of a Google search, Francie. Really? And you'll see Francie's <laughs> bio. She's, she's a founding member. For $500, you can become a founding member and have a full profile on cases. Uh, we profile the work of private investigators on past cases. Um, yeah. And so you, so, uh, um, so that's the, the concept of this organization. I'm welcoming private investors get involved and help me out on this. And I can tell you, folks, that Bill Cutter, hook, hook your star onto Bill Cutter because this is a guy that gets things done. So um, it's, I, I'm just constantly amazed at what, what he accomplishes. So um, tell us more about what happened with, let's go back to the McMillan Edgington the, case. The McMillan tell us case. more yeah. about what yeah. happened with Melissa, yeah. how that transpired. Yeah, so, th- yeah. so here she is. She's a, a, a 19-year-old um, woman, and she's, uh, and so she, She's leaving work at 10 p.m., and it was Cub Food Store. It was on the far southwest side of Springfield, Illinois, on the edge of development. And there's that, the west side of Springfield where all the development is, the, the White Oaks Mall. And, and then beyond that is Cornfield. Well, she turned up missing about an, less than an hour later. She lived in Waverly, Illinois, which is about 17, 18 miles southwest of Springfield. Her car was found abandoned less than an hour later. The headlights are on. The keys are in the ignition. A neighbor across the street, this is a, uh, the Waverly Blacktop Road, which is a very isolated rural country road surrounded by soybeans and cornfields. Mm-hmm. Um, a neighbor across the street noticed this car part, uh, just abandoned on the roadway. It's a two-lane road and calls it in. And the sheriff comes and moves the car uh, off to the side of the road and, um, and she's missing and she was, uh, on her way home. But what we did is we did a freedom of information request. We requested years later, all the, uh, the sheriff, the same kind of sheriff's investigation file. And when we got that, we received, there were witnesses who were interviewed by the sheriff department that there were, um, about six witnesses that reported a suspicious male uh, in his early 20s, uh, thin build, um, lurking in an employee parking lot of Cub Foods. And I don't think any of that, uh, any of those reports were turned over in discovery because had the defense attorney known that, that would have been part of their defense that she was abducted there at work. Um, it was Donald Goose Johnson's story. Oh, and I'll, let me jump to that. Goose Johnson, a few days after Melissa Kuntz disappears, and it's big news that she's disappeared, nobody can find her. Uh-huh. And uh, Goose Johnson is walking late at night down a dark road, walking it to Carlinville, Illinois, which is uh, about 45 miles south of Springfield, nowhere near Waverly, kind of uh, distant from Springfield. By It's about an hour away. Okay. He's picked up by a, he's picked up by a sheriff deputy, in McCoupin County because they had some reports uh, that there were a peeping Tom or some, so he gives Goose a ride. He's, you know, and offers him a ride home. And on the ride, Goose Johnson sees this pretty young 19 year old Melissa Kuntz. It was her high school graduation picture. She's smiling. And he asked the deputy, he says, I saw her in Carlinville at Bob and Missy's house. Like, 
you know, like Saturday or whatever it was. And of course that was impossible because she's laying dead in the cornfield less than a mile from where she left work, uh, about a mile and a half. And, uh, and so that he goes on to say that, uh, he knows, he knows her, knows this girl. What? No, he, he didn't know her at all. Huh. Of course, this is, remember, you got to keep in mind, this is a guy with an IQ of 50, 56. And then, right. of course, the deputy calls, uh, you know, Sangman County Sheriff's Department to report it. And, of course, nothing's done because of, they didn't take that lead seriously. And then a few days later, and this is uh, a week later, uh, Melissa Kuntz's body is found seven rows into a cornfield, laying face up. Her skirt had been flipped over, stabbed through stabbed through the inside of the skirt, through into her shirt, into her chest. Uh, she died of uh, multiple stab wounds. Hmm. Her bra had been torn open. Her, uh, she had a, a button-down shirt that uh, was like a V-neck, and the buttons were torn off, and her breast would have been exposed, but she's, you know, okay. she's been rotting in a cornfield for a week. And so... Was she sexually um, assaulted, Bill? I think she was, but, you know, after a week, there was no, I mean, right. the DNA would Nothing have degraded. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And how, and how so old is Goose at this point? How old is Goose? Yeah. Goose is, uh, this time, I think he's like in his late 20s, um, mm-hmm. maybe early 30s. And, uh, and of course, now he's drunk. He's at a bar in Carlinville. There was a report that uh, he might have stolen something out of some woman's purse. And so he's getting hauled into the jail for public intoxication. He sees the same deputy who picked him up with where he had seen the missing person poster and he's intoxicated and he blurts out, I know who killed that girl. It was Tom McMillan. And, uh, and of course then they take that seriously and that becomes, um, uh, reported the same kind of sheriff's office. The detective, detective James Mitchell drives down to Carlinville but Goose Johnson, in his report, said that he was so intoxicated, he had to wait till he sobered up. And when Goose sobers up, they start questioning about his statement. And I, you know, the only thing he knows is that he, sees, he saw a missing person poster. He didn't you know, uh, know anything about the murder. And, uh, and now, of course, he's in the, he's in the vice of, an, of, a, of a homicide interrogation. And so over the course of several days, he changes his story one I mean, at one point, he claims it was uh, a guy named Gary Angelo that picked him and his 15-year-old cousin up, and they witnessed the abduction and murder of Melissa Kuhn. So, of course, Gary Angelo was innocent. They investigated that lead, and there was nothing to it. And then finally, um, Bruce Johnson admits, well, yeah, I, have, I own a pocket knife, and I clean my fingernails with my pocket knife. And, yeah, I, I, I guess I could have stuck her. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I, I might have stuck her with that knife. And then, of course, that's the statement that gets him charged with capital murder. And at that point, he gives this story where he and his 15-year-old cousin are walking down. They're wanting beer money. And they, you know, uh, you got to realize where the car was found was miles away from Carlinville. It's no, it, you know, for one, it's, it's impossible for him to, and his cousin to have been walking there. And, and that uh, somehow he hooks up with Tom McMillan and Gary Etchington. They're driving Tom McMillan's girlfriend's car. And, of course, p- police search that car, and there's no evidence of blood anywhere. And Goose's story is, is that they're looking for beer money, and so they stand out in the middle of the Waverly Blacktop Road, and they wave down the first car they see. And then Gary uh, 
Edgington and Tom McMillan pull the girl out of her car and Tom stabs her in the arm and drags her down the, the blacktop road to, to Mary Pockerton's car that Tom had borrowed. And they take her away and they, and, he, and then of course, every detail he, I mean, he changes the story uh, by the minute. And in fact, the police note that like when they take a break, he changes the story again. And so, but the final story that gets, um, um, that, that he, he testifies to trial is stopping the car in the middle of um, Wayville Blacktop Road. But in the discovery that we foiled was a, a two police reports of an interview of a, uh, of a witness who was driving, she was coming back from a wedding reception and they see this uh, black Ford Escort slow to a stop in front of them. They had to swerve around because, you know, the, the speed limit's like 55 miles per hour posted. Mm-hmm. And they had to swerve to avoid hitting the car. And there was nobody in front of it flagging it down. And we believe that the prosecutors withheld those reports from the defense attorneys. There were two trials. Uh, Edgington and McMillan were tried separately. They had okay. uh, very you know, well-known uh, criminal defense lawyers representing them. And I've worked with both those attorneys. And had they been aware of those reports, that would have been part of their defense. And I why, think they hid that evidence. Why were the two trials severed? Well, there was uh, pretrial publicity. They were moved out of county, and and there were, um, you know, they were severed because there were uh, different maybe statements that conflicted. But uh, but but Gary Edgington made a false confession. Uh, okay. Bruce Johnson made a false confession. The fifteen-year-old boy who was also intellectually disabled, Danny Pockleton. He gave a false confession, wound up serving six years in juvenile detention before he was released. They offered Boos Johnson about a year goes by. And in the record, there's um, uh, on the docket sheet of, of Johnson's file, uh, there's uh, his defense attorney uh, has him evaluated. So we, the defense attorneys know there's a mental health evaluation mm-hmm. of, of Donald Johnson. Mm-hmm. And, and they make a motion before the judge to, to ask for it. And the judge denied that denied that motion. And so the defense attorney, um, when I interviewed him and showed him what we had gotten through an authorization from Johnson in 2008, the defense attorney said, you know, had I known that, had it, we would have presented that. There was, an issue, there was a question of whether with an IQ of 56 that Donald Johnson would have been uh, in, uh, uh, a competent witness. There should have been a mm-hmm. competency hearing to flush all Correct. that out. And so... Correct. And in addition to that, in our investigation, there were five jailhouse snitches, and I sent you an audio link to it. You can post it to your website. Okay. But uh, in this, there were five jailhouse snitches that claimed that, um, that Tom McMillan confessed to them, and all their details are, are wrong, and you can read that in our petition that's on, online. But one particular interview I conducted was an audio-recorded interview in the same county jail of an inmate named Dexter Huddleston. And Huddleston... He uh, was facing two major felony charges. He was looking at doing 10 years or more in prison. And two days after he testified against Tom McMillan, the so-called jailhouse confession, he's mm-hmm. cut loose on those charges. And given credit for time served, he spends probably almost a year in jail waiting trial. So he's free two days after mm-hmm. he testifies. Well, not only did, did he get that benefit for testifying, but he... In, when you pull court records, you learn a lot about people. And in his petitions, he was petitioning the judge to get married because he had a fiance. He identified her by name, and he wanted the judge in his his pending cases to 
grant him, uh, allow him to get married so he can have conjugal visits with his fiance. Right. And of course, the judge denied that. Well, right. what he disclosed to me, and it's in the audio clip, is that he was the Sangamon County State's attorney facilitated sex with his fiance in the Sangamon County courthouse. Okay. And that was an undisclosed <laughs> benefit that nobody knew about. And, right. And, you know, it's a fascinating interview. Um, and uh, we'll be posting the full interview uh, um, as well. But we're, we're going to ramp up our social media efforts to, um, to urge Governor Pritzker to free Tom McMillan. So, it's, 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 so it's why Tom? Why Tom McMillan, Gary Edgington? Why them? Well, um, well, this was a case that I feel very strongly about. Uh, when I was director of investigations, Illinois Innocence Project, uh, this was a case. I, 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 it's a case from Springfield, Illinois, where I lived for many years. Uh, I still have an office there, um, but it was a case that I was familiar with at the time it happened because I was at that time working on the Nicarico cases, which is one of the most infamous cases in U.S. history where it was one of the rare cases where police and prosecutors got indicted for their conspiracy to frame two innocent men, send them to death row. And so yeah. I, my client initiated all that, and he was intellectually disabled, and he gave one rambling statement after another claiming he knew who killed uh, Janine Nicarico, who was uh, 10 years old, abducted from her home. And it was so bad that the lead detective, Detective John Sam of the DuPage County Sheriff's Department, resigned after they indicted three men. And he says, you got the wrong guys. And uh, so I saw some parallels between Alex Hernandez, my client, in the Carrico case, and Goose Johnston in the McMillan case. So I'm following that story as it's happening. And, of course, I, uh, I, I wasn't working on the case when it went to trial. Uh, had, I, yeah. had I been assigned to work that case, who knows? They might not be where they're at. We might have flushed right. this all out sooner. And a so jury did, might have heard. Did they the, reach uh, out to you, Bill, IQ. or did you reach out to them? How to, tell, tell us how that works when yeah. somebody's declaring their yeah. innocence. Yeah, yeah. What happened is, is um, and of course, you know, by this time I'm directing a, 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 product, a project that has institutional support with the university, but few financial resources. And uh, uh, Debbie McMillan, Tom's sister, wrote to our project. And when I saw that it was the McMillan case. I assigned two students. I was immediately interested in it. And when they analyzed the discrepancies of, uh, of Donald Goose Johnson's statements, and I'll send that to you so you can post on your website as well. And you okay. can um, uh, probably find it on ours as well. But mm-hmm. when, I, when I saw the, the, the evolution of his statements over the course of three days, and you know, he couldn't tell the same story uh, twice straight. I mean, every, every time it changed, I knew that this was uh, a strong probability of an actual innocence case. And then the more you dig into it, and that's the thing about um, an actual innocence case, you know, this is really uh, where you need investigation. This is where an investigator is valued to flush all these facts out. And, uh, right. and so what, what I did is we started doing the freedom of information request and initially we got some resistance and we got finally unredacted reports. We had to pressure them to the sheriff's department to, to release those. And then after we, I took a, a team of two students and we got the video and uh, we'll be posting those on uh, YouTube as we, as we uh, get closer to uh, October. But um, when we did the recantation of Donald Johnston, 
um, and got his authorization. I went to the Sangamon County Sheriff, uh, Neil Williamson, and I asked his department to cooperate because there was an unknown thumbprint on the rearview mirror of Melissa Kuhn's car. And we asked the sheriff to voluntarily run that through APHIS and identify whose fingerprint that is because they did a very exhaustive um, attempt to eliminate family members and, and the deputy who moved the car and friends and uh, friends of Melissa Kuntz at work to make sure it just wasn't left there innocently. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the fingerprint came back to a guy and uh, that story is in our petition, but it was a, a friend of her brother and her brother had been, was living with family members on the North end of Springfield, attending Lanford high school, which is a kind of a rough inner city school. And he, for some reason, transferred from a school called Jacksonville Route. And so his best friend was this guy uh, whose fingerprint popped up. And then Hmm. when he was interviewed by the sheriff's department, he didn't have a really good explanation. You know, he claimed that the brother shared his car with Melissa, uh, which, you know, they had separate vehicles. Um, The brother had driven by a Cub Food parking lot after he got off work at uh, Bonanza Steakhouse. And, um, and so when we, when I reached out and finally made contact with this individual and explained to him that I had, we had uh, applied for what's called a Bloodsworth grant specifically for this case. And we, we were awarded almost three quarters of a million dollars to post, to establish a post conviction DNA testing program for Illinois. Mm-hmm. And when we did the DNA, we came, I, you know, isolated I wanted testing of the bra, the lace portion of the bra that had been torn open by the perpetrator. And so we had, it eliminated, that DNA testing eliminated Tom McMillan, Gary Edgington, Bruce Johnston, Danny Pocklington, um, and there was an unknown partial male DNA profile on that bra. And so when I asked this person if he would voluntarily provide a DNA standard just to eliminate him, he refused, and he still refuses to this day. Hmm. And so I called on the attorney general to establish a statewide conviction integrity unit for Illinois, because right now it's the prosecutors who are leading the country. It used to be the innocence projects that were freeing the innocent. Now it's prosecutors by establishing a, an objective uh, conviction integrity unit. I wrote about the Jonathan Fleming case. You can read about that on our website where prosecutors, uh, I mean, they've been instrumental. So, so, and I think we're going to get that accomplished in Illinois. But the question that remains is, uh, you know, I'm, I'd, I'd like the governor to release Tom McMillan and Gary Edgington, uh, commute their sentences until this investigation is completed by a, uh, an independent prosecutor to uh, review the integrity of this conviction. Because I'm telling you, this conviction is the most tainted I've worked on in my career doing this 34 plus years. You know, and, it's, uh, it's astonishing. And I know that... Uh, Investigators that do criminal defense across the country see this, see this kind of thing. This, although this is really egregious, yeah, unbelievably no, egregious. Um, yeah, and I've been involved in three cases where either police or prosecutors or both have been indicted for their misconduct. Uh, the Nicarico case, uh, the seven police and prosecutors were indicted, and I testified in that case in 1999. I had a case in Springfield, Illinois, where... Uh, Two detectives wound up getting indicted for, you know, they tried to railroad an innocent man. The, the jury uh, acquitted him 
in 90 minutes. And, you know, that was a 10-year cold case, but a lot of misconduct in that. But um, this case, you know, I had a case in Kentucky. It was a federal death penalty case where uh, the trooper of the year that broke the case uh, eventually got indicted for perjury. And uh, my client, you know, the prosecutors agreed to drop the death penalty on a, a pending federal case. But this case is right up there among uh, those cases that I've investigated in my, my, my career. Yeah. I mean, allowing yeah. conjugal visits with a, a yep. jailhouse snitch and his, and his girlfriend uh, and not disclosing that. That's, that's, that's indictable conduct. Well, we, I have want, the same, I want we have the same kind of thing that happened in San Diego. So it, it does happen. It does oh, happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does happen. But, uh, you know, when they get it wrong, there should be an objective review of, a, of, of the integrity of a conviction. Yep. And uh, as long as, you know, the prosecutors who got it wrong are still in control of decision making, you're not going to get justice anytime soon. And as you know, Bill, working on a person that you believe is innocent is the toughest thing in the world. It's, oh. it's oh, yeah. much harder than working on a case where the evidence is very clear the person committed the crime. It's, yeah. it's yeah, just mean, emotionally, it's just, well, it really takes a toll. Yeah. Well, and to give you an example how difficult these cases were, at least in the beginning when I started my career, it was uh, when I got involved in the Nicaragua case in 1988, by the time I got involved in the case, you already had the confession of the real killer, a serial mm-hmm. killer. You had a full profile match, the sexual assault kid from this 10-year-old girl. You had the Illinois State Police that conducted an investigation that had 50 points of corroboration to the confession, and prosecutors uh, who eventually got indicted uh, covered it up. And then, you know, it, even with that evidence, uh, a jury reconvicted my client because prosecutors weren't playing straight. Uh, they told, you know, the jury, well, if you believe the real guy did it, his DNA matched the sex, sexual assault case, he must have done it with uh, Alejandro right. Hernandez and Rolando Cruz. <laughs> you know? Right. So how do you defend against right. that? You know, it's just, so, um, yeah, so these are hard cases, but it's getting easier with the conviction integrity units where prosecutors are leading the efforts to review the conviction of these past uh, cases. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I'm hoping happens in Illinois. I hope so too. Um, I, I mean, uh, you've done a great job, and and I you have so much that you can teach. I think people to look more. Well, that's where <laughs> I, excuse I, me. I need to. I, that's where I want to shift. Um, I want to shift but, that in my career. Like if, if PIs are listening and and they have a conference coming up in their state association. Uh, reach out to me. I'd be happy to come and and speak to your associations on how to conduct post-conviction investigation. Yep. And you did recently in California <laughs> a year, about a year yes. ago. And that was, uh, that was one of the best conferences I attended, the Cali conference. I was very impressed. Yeah. So, California uh, Association. But, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you've mentioned several times that you did a public records request and uh, w- would you tell people, kind of what the process is for that because maybe I'm sure a lot of people haven't ever done a public records request and the kinds of things you can get back when you go after criminal yeah. records. Right, right. And so, you know, there's, uh, op- you know, some states call it open records request. Uh, others call it Freedom of Information Act. Um, but it's, a, it's where any, any government is required to provide to uh, the public or someone inquiring 
um, you know, records. And in this case, it was the same account as sheriff's, and it was through our Freedom of Information Act where we just, and we had to fight for it because initially they wanted to provide, they wanted to provide redacted reports, and I fought uh-huh. that. And so there's an appeal process. You have to read the statute. Each state has a process where you can, uh, an appeal and a denial. You know, just because you get a rejection letter, you don't stop there. You, you go through the appeal process. And in some cases, we use the media to raise you know, like the unfairness, like it, we wanted the sheriff to provide us, they, they finally provided us all the paper discovery. And then we wanted the video and audio as well. And we made a, a freedom, of, freedom of information request for that. And they wanted to charge uh, the Illinois Innocence Project $700 to get that. And so, of course, you know, I raised that. I went, out, I went on a media campaign, you know, how you know, unfair that was. And then finally, I think it wound up costing us $46. But, you know, there's there's uh, lessons to be learned when to use the media on cases like this. And, uh, you know, of course, the, uh, if you read the Rodney Lincoln case, that's a, a great example of how the media really was instrumental in getting the recantation of the surviving victim who, uh, who has now become best friends with Rodney Lincoln. Rodney Lincoln spent 36 years in prison and was finally freed because of uh, Crime Watch Daily, the show that I did uh, in 2015. Yeah, talk a little bit about the facts of the Rodney Lincoln case, Bill. Yeah, okay. So I've been in, um, when I was director of investigations um, for the Innocence Project, uh, one of our exonerations, uh, Herb Willock, the murder in Paris, Illinois, that was featured on uh, CNN Death Row Stories and uh, originally 48 Hours, uh, the real killer was the serial killer, Tommy Lynn Sells. Uh, he was one of the most notorious serial killers in the country. He lived in St. Louis. He roamed Illinois, um, everywhere. I mean, West Virginia, Texas, he was all over. I mean, this is the other thing is if investigators have cold cases where they think he might have done it, if uh-huh. his MO was he would, he would, he would enter a home at 4 a.m. And there are several cases, uh, the case in Del Rio, Texas, where he was finally caught on New Year's Eve. Uh, rested, I think, New Year's Day. He broke into this trailer at 4 a.m. He used a knife from the kitchen. He, uh, he stabbed to death uh, Kayleen Harris, who was 10. Uh, um, Crystal Searles uh, survived having her throat slit. And was, uh, that led to the arrest of Tommy Lynn Sells. And so that's 2000. When I read in March of 2000, the uh, reports in Illinois that he had confessed to the Dardeen murders in Southern Illinois, the most brutal murder I've ever listened to. In fact, I had a client who was a drug client, major. He was like involved in kilos and pounds of marijuana. He asked me if I was aware of the Dardeen murder. And he, in this wry mm-hmm. smile, he says, you know, that was designed to send a message. And um, Ruby Dardeen, Keith Dardeen's wife, was eight months pregnant. Um, she had a three-year-old, they had a three-year-old son, Peter. They were both bludgeoned to death with a baseball bat. Mm. After she had given birth, the eight-month-old child, that baby was bludgeoned, and the baseball bat was found in her birth canal. Um, Keith Dardine, I think there was evidence that there were hands had been bound with duct tape, and the duct tape was removed by the killer. I believe, my theory of that case is that they waited for Keith Dardine to come home and he witnessed the slaughter of his family. And then he was taken about a mile down the road and shot execution style in the back of the head. And his penis was severed, stuffed in his mouth. 
and the family vehicle was parked in Benton, uh, Benton, Illinois, about 17 miles away, where my, that's where I got my start on a major federal drug conspiracy case in uh, 1986. Was, other than being a serial killer, was there a motive? Was there retribution of some kind? Well, I think in that case, later I, I hook up with a guy named Alba Bush, who retired as an Illinois State Police Crime Scene Investigator. And he was the one that encouraged a friend of his who made that connection to um, investigate Tommy Lynn Sells when he was arrested. And mm-hmm. when Texas Rangers interviewed him, he recalled details that only the killer could know. He knew that there were, uh, inside the Dardeen home, there was a watermelon pattern plate in the kitchen. And that's a detail that he could not have known uh, mm-hmm. through media or anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he was good for that. And in the Randy Steidel case, the subject of uh, Susan Sarandon's death row stories that appeared right. on CNN uh, 2015, uh, that was a double murder that happened at 4 a.m. in Paris, Illinois. There was a woman, a neighbor, who heard a woman's scream suddenly stop at 4 a.m. And then the house was set on fire. The fire department comes out about 45 minutes later. And they find two people upstairs stabbed to death, the newlyweds. They were newlywed. Uh, a week before... Dyke and Karen Rhodes were murdered. Uh, Karen had witnessed her boss loading machine guns into his red Corvette with his right-hand man, Smoke, Smoke Burba, and they were headed to Chicago. And, of course, um, Morgan Manufacturing was um, started around the same time that the Pizza Connection conspiracy was beginning in Paris, Illinois. In Paris, Illinois, the nephew of the head of the Sicilian Mafia operated a pizza parlor, Joe's Pizza, in Paris, Illinois, and also in Olney, Illinois, hmm. um, which is not far from where the Dardines were killed. And um, in that case, Rudy, Rudy Giuliani and Louis Breach were prosecuting 33 or 32 members of the Sicilian American Mafia in New York City, and then witnesses were turning up dead. And she reports a week before she's murdered that she sees her boss, and because it's unusual because they don't operate in cash, why they'd have large sums of cash and machine guns. Of course, at that time, you had the Iran-Contra scandal where the CIA is uh, helping to ship arms to Latin America and on the return mm-hmm. trip, they're bringing back cocaine, which, you know, I mean, it, you know, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but, it, but it's all facts. I mean, you can document the, uh, right. the, uh, right. the investigation that John Kerry did. Um, and so... So Tommy Lincells committed that murder. He committed the Dardeen murder. And then when I filed um, a petition for executive clemency for Herbert Whitlock, Randy Stato's co-defendant in the Paris case, and I'm detailing all of Tommy Lincells' murders, and I detail my interview with Tommy Lincells where he's, I'm asking him a lot of questions about the Dardeen murder, and he's telling me about this place in Terre Haute, Indiana. It's like a club that if you have, know the right people, it's, you know, you get the keys to the city. Well, the Sons of Silence had their clubhouse. Their, their, you know, where they hung out was in Terre Haute, Illinois, or uh, Indiana, not far from uh, uh, Paris, Illinois, and not far from uh, Ina, Illinois. Um, and so when I asked Tommy Lincells, well, you know, I knew he was a drug mule. When you would mule drugs to Illinois, where would you go? And he says, Terre Haute. And that's not in Illinois, that's Indiana, but it's right on the border. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so I filed this, uh, detail, all of this in, a, in an affidavit and 
Kay Lincoln, Rodney Lincoln's daughter, reads that, and she sees the detail about the Dardeen murder, about the baseball bat in the, in the birth canal. And in her father's case, she, um, her father, Rodney Lincoln, uh, dated this woman that was found dead in her apartment in St. Louis. Uh, her two children, four and seven, were also left for dead. They had their throats slit. They both survived, the two little girls. But the mother, uh, the neighbors upstairs heard banging around 4 a.m. A knife from the kitchen was used, similar to many of the other crimes uh, mm-hmm. self did, including Julie Ray Harper. I mean, at 4 a.m., I mean, that's a whole other case. But Kate Lincoln reads this affidavit. She reaches out to me and was struck by the similarities in the MO. And so then at the same time, I'm uh, reaching out to uh, uh, Diane Fanning, a true crime author who wrote the book uh, about Tommy Lynn Sells, Cross Country, or Through the Window is the name of the book. And so yeah, she, Through the Window, right. Um, he, yeah, so somehow she, I get put in touch with uh, a producer, Ron Zimmerman, with Crime Watch Daily, and he covers my investigation. And so one of the things I had, um, I had my son, Keegan, who's a, he works as an investigator for the Madison County Public Defender's Office uh, on, I think on a Saturday on his off time, he went and interviewed Tommy Lynn Sell's brother and his brother described moving to St. Louis a few, a few months before uh, 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 Joanne Tate, uh, she was in her early 30s, mid 30s, was murdered. And one of the details of that was not only the M.O. at 4 a.m., a knife from the kitchen, but she had been mm-hmm. sexually assaulted with a broom, broom handle. And I looked at these crime scene photos, and these were the most horrendous I'd ever seen because the only thing that's sticking out is the bristles of the broom. It went mm-hmm. that far into her mm-hmm. body. And wow. so, you know, that, that detail with the Dardeen murder with the baseball bat was inserted into the birth canal, and only the top of the handle was, was sticking out. I mean, that, that, those two, that detail of an M.O., it had to be cells. And so by putting cells in St. Louis right before that murder, and of course, this gets all put in this story. And you can go and Google Crime Watch Daily. You can Google my name and Rodney Lincoln. You'll, you can see the clips, the video clips, where in that interview, um, Melissa DeBoer, who was seven years old at the time, witnessed her mm-hmm. mother's murder. She was the one that, whose testimony gave... Uh, they convicted Rodney Lincoln in, you know, like the early 1982, 83. The murder happened in April of 82. He was convicted after two trials in 1983. She's being interviewed in the same story that appeared, uh, went national, it was a nationally syndicated show, Crime Watch Daily. She's on the opposite end where I'm advocating that Rodney Lincoln's innocent and it was Tommy Lynn Sells, but she sees Tommy Lynn Sells and has this flashback. And it's like this realization, oh, my God, that's the man who killed my mother. And she mm. comes forward. So the, the first is where she's arguing that he should rot in jail. And then the follow-up in December was a story where she's meeting Rodney Lincoln in prison and asking him to forgive her. And Rodney now is in his early 70s. And, you know, he's, it was, you know, so impactful. He tells her, you know, you were just a child. I don't blame you. And she actually sits down and meets with the prosecutor asking her, to do the right thing and free Rodney Lincoln, and she was oh wow, and they amazing in court, yeah. And uh, finally, with uh, Governor Eric Greitens of Missouri on his last day of office, committed his sentence and released him in uh, June third of two thousand eighteen. So that's our latest exoneration. 
And, and, and it you know, speaks the to the how powerful eyewitness testimony is, because yeah, I mean, it, it, who would deny that a child eyewitness testimony would be false? No one, no right. one. Right. And right. and and she was wrong. And it's uh, she was wrong. It hap- yeah, yeah, happens that is, all the such time. A beautiful story. How she she realized she was once once she realized she was wrong. Here's the victim advocating for the release of man who's convicted of her mother's murder. I mean, that was a powerful, powerful um, uh, moment when they met. And, uh, and you know, ironically, uh, Governor Eric Greitens, he's no longer governor. He got, you know, in that sex scandal where he had, he uh, photographed his mistress uh, nude to blackmail her if she ever revealed the affair. <laughs> and of course, I know, you can't make this up. husband. <laughs> Yeah, you can't make it. And the same prosecutor, the same prosecuting office that prosecuted Rodney Lincoln, then indicts a governor, a sitting governor, Eric Greitens. Of uh, you know, there were some crimes he committed in doing that. Right? She was tied right. up naked, and he, he, he without oh, her consent, gosh. he photographed her. And then, um, and so, so he gets prosecuted, and so he's realizing that you know, I think it's a little tit for tat. I mean, it just was good fortune for Rodney Lincoln because. On his last day in office, he commuted that sentence from that prosecutor's office. Uh, when when that prosecutor had failed to do the right thing, when you have a victim who's now saying, "I got it, I was mistaken," set him free. And well, and the amazing part, oh. even with all of that evidence, the prosecutor wouldn't budge. Right, wouldn't budge, and so so there's the connection with what we're trying to do with, with Tom McMillan. We're asking our governor to do the right thing. We're asking our attorney general to get involved and review this conviction and give advice to the governor on what he should do. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're in the process of making that happen. I hope. My oh, Bill, I love your passion. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> it's just, uh, it really invigorates me for sure. And I hope it has, is having the same effect on other people that do the kind of work that you and I do. Uh, so yeah. at this point with uh, Lincoln, he's out. Yes, Lincoln is out. Lincoln is out. What is he doing now? He's enjoying life. Uh, a year ago in August, um, my son Keegan and I paid him a visit. And ironically, it was his birthday. I didn't realize it was his birthday. but So we go to his home. And we went to the home of his daughter, both daughters were there, Kay and Janie, and they're getting ready for a birthday celebration. This would be his first birthday of freedom. And oh, while we're goodness. standing there, and I'm introducing Rodney to my son, Keegan, he had met Keegan, who, who made a key interview, link, putting cells in St. Louis. He gets a call from Melissa DeBoer, and you can hear her say, really? I love you, and he no. says, I love you back. You know, it's like they keep in oh, contact. That was the most touching part. And, uh, so he, uh, he went skydiving. He's been fishing. And when I last spoke to him, he, was, uh, he had gone uh, zip lining in Colorado through this gorge. It was like, mm-hmm. I don't know how, you know, like, <laughs> some exciting stuff. And so what he's doing is, you know, he's, it, the day we visited him, I think it was his 74th birthday a year ago, August of 2018. And so he's trying to do the things in life. He's wanting to do as much as he can in life before his end is, uh, you know, before yeah. you know, we all have to go at some point. But he's so squeezing thir- a, a lifetime of activity years. in his 70s. Yeah, he was, but 36 he was in years. 36 years. 
So yeah. he went into prison when he was uh, 37 or 38? Yeah, yeah. He was in his uh, late 30s, I think. But 36 yeah. years. I, I couldn't imagine. Um, you know, some of the people who listen to this program probably aren't even 36 years old. But right, exactly. I've been, right. I, but I, so, although I've been to some of your time, I've been a little, I know a lot of PIs, and like me, they've been doing this a long time. But uh, yeah, I couldn't so, imagine. What was what was Rodney Lincoln doing at the time he was arrested? What kind of work was he doing? What what was his life like? I think he was a laborer. I you know I um, you know he had and the thing about why they focused on him uh, when he was in his late teens, I think, or early twenties, he was in a barroom brawl and uh, and uh, he was charged with um, oh uh, uh, it was manslaughter. So he had yeah. pled guilty to a manslaughter. So here's already a convicted killer. And so just, you know, yeah. it's, you know, like the tunnel vision, the police go, wow, he must have done it because he's you know, <laughs> been known to kill before. Yeah. And manslaughter equals yeah. this. It's just crazy. Right, you know, Bill, we're, right. when we are out of time is, almost. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're almost oh out of God. time. We just got a couple of minutes left. So um, do you have any like, major pointers you want to give in the next couple of minutes that you can give to people to get involved in these kind of cases? Should they yeah. volunteer for um, their local innocence project? Should, what, what should they do? Well, what I would encourage people to do is go to our website, take advantage of this free listing in our directory through the end of the year. Yeah. And you can decide whether to renew. But for the $100 um, and annual due, if you renew, uh, past the free membership, um, you can become uh, listed on our directory. It's it's good marketing, but it also we're going to be doing uh, training. I'm going to do uh, on the back end of our website video training programs on post conviction investigations, and of course when I come to speak, we'll video record and make that part of our ongoing training. But uh, but get involved uh, by becoming a member, and feel free if you've got a case, reach out to me, and I can back. Uh, are, uh, I'm looking for state directors. The way we organize this is I'd like to uh, have a director in each state organizing PIs mm-hmm. and fundraising for cases. Um, and uh, regional directors, we have 11. Uh, the vision for this is to have 11 regional directors that are elected by the state directors. And uh, the map uh, mirrors the uh, federal uh, appellate court uh, circuits. And so... Uh, that's the way the organization is organized. Um, I'm looking for, you know, the talent of those who someone yep. has experience in fundraising. I'd like to hear from you. If you have experience working yep. on an instance case, we'd like to tell your story by becoming a founding member. You get a full page on our website and that has a high Google ranking. And so when people Google your name or your case that you worked on, they're going to find you on investigating it. Good. We've got to close, Bill. Thank you so much. Uh, again, it's a fabulous, um, fabulous resource here. Thank you so much. And for the rest of you, it's PIC Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIC Classified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 